Welcome to Abolition Liberation Solidarity, a Here for the Kids production. We are an abolition movement dedicated to fighting the systems of oppression that stem from white supremacy, including gun violence, climate catastrophe, houselessness, and oppression of all kinds. I'm Syra Rao, your host and co-founder of Here for the Kids. Speaking up for the first time isn't easy. Whether it's about racial discrimination in the workplace, gender discrimination, or standing up for Palestine, the simple act of expressing yourself can come with unintended consequences. These consequences are by design, a way of protecting the status quo of white supremacy and patriarchy. The people who play by the rules are rewarded with promotions, raises, and visibility. The people who question the dominant structures are demoted, fired, silenced, or worse. My guest today knows that reality too well. The daughter of Indian immigrants to the U.S., she spent the first 20 years of her career climbing the corporate ladder of the financial industry, playing by the rules all along the way and achieving great success as a result. In 2020, she was named a VP at her firm and also led diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives for her company. She received awards for her work, represented her company on TV, and helped champion racial and gender equality in the workplace. But with her newfound voice came clashes with management that ultimately resulted in her leaving the financial industry to found her own company. She has recently extended her work in the DEI space to become an activist for Palestinian liberation and is speaking out about how white supremacy, the patriarchy, and capitalism are all intertwined, limiting all of our potential. It is my pleasure to introduce Sybil Patry. Sybil, welcome to Abolition Liberation Solidarity. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. We have to start with the video that so many thousands, tens of thousands, it might even be hundreds of thousands of people at this point have seen of you recently speaking at what your town hall or city council. Walk us through it. Yeah, it's wild because I live in a very small town, you know, to back up as to why that video was even posted in the first place. Some things were coming up in our town in regards to Israel and Palestine and specifically, you know, I'm not that active on Facebook, but I'm part of some mom groups because I have young children. So in my small town, one of the mom groups, the person that administers the group, posted a screenshot of a message that Dan Welsh, one of our town council members, posted on his own public Facebook page. And the message outlined why he believes that there needs to be a ceasefire why uh, he doesn't believe in what the U.S. is funding, all supported by facts. Basically, this person on the Facebook group was calling him out and saying, you know, basically tagging everybody in our group, in the mom group, saying, can you believe this guy? And so I woke up one morning seeing that I was tagged onto this post and I'm trying to make sense of it. I didn't follow him on Facebook, and I I didn't really know what his political stance was. But I felt really compelled to respond because I felt like the audacity in that moment of this person to call out Dan for standing with humanity, you know, it just made me feel like a little crazy. And so I said, well, what did he do that's wrong? And why are you posting this? Do you think that there is nobody that's pro-Palestinian that lives in this town? Do you think there aren't any Muslims that might live in this town? Or are you just posting this to call them out? 
And I was really the only person that posted sort of with an opposing view. And I noticed how many people had supporting views and people were saying all kinds of crazy things like, we should send Dan to Gaza with no, you know, armor and like, you know, have him defend crazy things. And people were liking it. And this is a mom group. They weren't even thinking about the fact that children are getting murdered. And so I met Dan, you know, you know, I connected with him on Facebook because I, I'm like, I'm on this guy's side. Did you reach out to him? I reached out to him. Yeah. And um, I told him what was going on because I also noticed that there were people that were going to call for his resignation. Wow. Or what he posted. And then he asked me if I would want to come balance it out and share my comments, which I shared with him, you know, over message. And I said I would have to think about it. At the very least, I thought maybe I'll email. I wasn't sure if I was in the headspace to go because it is a small town and I I have gone to school board meetings and I have stood up. But, you know, Sarah, as you know, this is a marathon. And so you don't want to get so beat down that you can't go on. And so I, I thought about it. I reached out to you and I said, should I do this? I don't know. If, you know, and you also have to think about like what will have the most impact. And you said, yeah. I said, okay, let me do this. And so we talked and you you literally helped me prepare my comments for this. And I'm so grateful because you have to be careful when you're speaking publicly about things and you have to, you know, one of the reasons why people are so scared is they're so frightened to say the wrong thing. So well, like, I know I didn't need to be perfect or anything. I knew that I needed to get some of the key things, like the themes right. And, you know, even talking about, it's about the children and, you know, just certain things that I was able to nail down for that. I really appreciate you for that. You know, I decided I, I, I couldn't actually go in person and I found out that I could attend via Zoom. And so I did it. And yeah, my husband recorded the whole thing and he was cheering me on. I thought, yeah, let me just post this. I didn't think it was going to go viral. And I think I told you that. I'm like, it was it was just me speaking at a town board meeting over Zoom. Like the stakes were pretty low. I did have things like written down that I could read, but I did get very passionate during it because I just, you know, you feel it in your bones and you just, you want everybody else to feel it. Once it was out there, it just took a life of its own. And I think, you know, you realize how much you can inspire people. That's a big deal. I'm glad I did what I did, but it's even bigger to know that you can inspire people to speak, even with your voice shaking, even, you know, knowing that there are going to be repercussions. I have a lot of people that aren't talking to me right now. (laughs) I live in a small town and I don't really want to go outside. And, you know, you still want to do the right thing. And then if you can inspire other people to do it, that's amazing. What happened to Dan after that? Yeah. So at the meeting, there were a lot of people that uh, were calling for his resignation. There were, I think, two or three other people aside from myself that really stood up for him. And he continued to post on Facebook, I think, four days ago. And so now I'm seeing um, there's more threads going on and people still calling for his resignation um, because he's so adamant about, you know, what's going on and wanting to stop the humanitarian crisis. And people are asking him, like, well, why are you so concerned about this? And it still blows my mind. I mean, we've said everything that there is to say and- like Sarah, I'm trying to like try to think about what you're doing out there in the world and what I'm attempting to do. And it's like, 
you need people to go from, I didn't know. And so many people in the past could say, I didn't know. But now it's, you knew, you just didn't care. And so it's, I didn't care. I heard everything that Sybil said. I saw the video. I saw all of these things that are happening. And I just don't care about them because they are less than human. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it, right? That's it. Well, look, let's go back to how you, you did it. And I know you've said to me personally, it doesn't feel like such a big deal anymore. But I can tell you talking to you beforehand how scared you were and how this is the grand con of white supremacy culture is forcing you to be afraid of speaking up. So you're silent. And then you actually speak up and you're like, I'm fine. This is actually, uh, it's so not scary. And, and the more and more you speak up, the less scary it gets. Is that true for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was definitely scared in that moment. You know, there's so much going on like with your, my own emotional and mental stability in this point in time. And you're like, you just don't want that one more thing. But I do think that the couple of other times that I was able to speak out really trained me for that moment that I had and for whatever other moments that, you know, I'll have in the future. So you need to get in the reps. And this was this was an example of that. And it definitely makes it easier to do it again because you think, what's the worst that can happen? Right. Um, have people I, I saw on your Instagram you said that people had reached out for you for the exact script. Is that is that happening still? Uh yeah, a couple of people did ask me um for the script. And so, you know, I sent a version of it that doesn't include Dan, but yeah. And, and that's great. I mean, if that can be a template for people, that's amazing. And whatever can make it easier for people to get out there and use their voice. That's awesome. Um, all right. Well, you know what's interesting? In addition to the fact that you have the same name as my late mother, we both are children of Indian immigrants. I think, you know, both grew up very much mired in this toxic, racist model minority myth. I worked on Wall Street you know, in New York City, and you've worked in finance, you know, in the financial industry. What happened to you? Like, what happened along the way to bring you to now where you left your company? If you can just kind of tell us what you're about your awakening, so to speak. Yeah, I grew up as an immigrant. And we were really kind of taught about the American dream. And I grew up as a scrappy immigrant. <laughs> And I say that because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I kind of stumbled into finance. And then, you know, I felt that getting into that corporate space, it was good for someone like me. I experienced a lot of kind of trauma growing up. And that structure of corporate and that validation was what I needed in life. And so as soon as I started and I thought, wow, all I need to do is work hard and act like someone else. I get rewarded for that. <laughs> what to do is be a totally different person and I'll be rewarded. And that's, that's exactly what I did. I turned into corporate Sybil for 20 years. I was able to get raises and promotions. And there were a lot of roadblocks because I still am a brown woman in a white dominant field, white male dominated field. But I was able to get to a level of success that I never even thought about, like money that I never thought about, generational wealth that I never thought about. And so, yeah, when you when you introduced me, 2020, if anybody were to look at me, it's meritocracy at its finest. 
here I am, this brown woman. I got my company's highest award, and I was the first woman of color in their like 60-year history to get this award. I was also, I think, the first woman of color to get even promoted to VP in the company. And so, you know, the first, the only, and I am on their uh, cover of their annual report with my son, 2020. It's all very heartwarming. And so what's really interesting is that in May of 2020, I got this award. And a couple of weeks after George Floyd was murdered, it was a very strange time, right? Where I was at the height of my career and I got an award for my contribution to DEI and ESG. And I'm thinking, wow, like everybody's really into DEI now. And I, I was a little naive and I thought, they actually want me to be my authentic self and I can push for change. I don't have to pretend like I did for all those years. Now I can be me. And so I started sharing more on LinkedIn and I started being more of my authentic self in um, the corporate space. And I started advocating for underrepresented groups. I started advocating after the murder of George Floyd. And I started talking about all of these problems that people say exist in corporate spaces. And I said, they're only problems because we choose to keep them that way. And I really pushed back a lot for three years. And what did that look like, though? Like when you say you started advocating, what did that look like? Yeah. So advocating for the people in the company as somebody that was in a higher level position, I would go in and say, hey, look, um, you know, when the Buffalo shooting happened, we need to say something and we need to give people space and grace to deal. Like we need to treat our employees like humans that are going through things instead of just exploiting them for their productivity. What a radical notion, treating people like humans. It's wild, but you know you know what happens in the corporate space. It's business as usual. You put out a statement about, yeah, reach out to your, you know, our healthcare team if you, if you need somebody to talk to. And it's just very like plain vanilla, bare minimum. And I'm like, people need more than that. And even though I'm not an HR or people person, I think every good leader should be a people person and should care about people and humanity and the things that are happening in the world. And so if if you dare to say, like, I want you to bring your authentic selves, then you have to accept what that actually means. And, you know, what I found out the hard way and what a lot of people know is that nobody wants you to bring your authentic self. That's the biggest bullshit because it comes with such tremendous risk. I mean, think about it. I played the part and I did my Oscar-worthy performance for almost 20 years and look where it got me, like a big award, right? And then as soon as I started being who I am and advocating for other people so that they can be who they are, uh, I got penalized. It's a long story and, and and I don't want to belabor it, but you know, I, I think there were two things happening simultaneously at the company. One is because DE&I was trending, I was tokenized and I was being asked to speak and be at the front of these things and I was building business and I was bringing business in and on the other end, you know, there was the high-level C-suite executives that were like she's talking too freely, right. you know, and monitoring me and 
people were monitoring what I was saying on LinkedIn. And I was very nervous because- Like literally there are people at the company who are like tasked with watching every, your every move on social media. People were watching my every move on social media. And so one of the things that happened to me was I posted something on LinkedIn around Independence Day last year saying, I don't really feel like celebrating Independence Day because, you know, I think it's fair to be critical of your government, even if you feel like America has given you a lot. It's that immigrant dilemma. But, you know, I very respectfully stated that, you know, this country was built on uh, slavery and the genocide of Native Americans. And I, I posted a video of Frederick Douglass, of his descendants, saying his what to the slave is the 4th of July speech. Mm -hmm. And that was it. You know, I didn't tag my company. I didn't tag anybody. But I am representing somebody who's being authentic. And I'm somebody that was rewarded for being authentic. And so, like, if anybody can take that risk, I can. And one of our clients, one of my company's clients came onto my page, found me. We're not even connected. And he said, I can't believe your company endorses this. If you don't like it here, why don't you leave? I bet you won't. The corporate version of go back to your go back to your country. You yeah. know, racist. I yeah. mean, when you're yeah. asking me to leave the country and my parents are immigrants, you're telling me to go back to where I came from. And that's like, right. you know, that that's racist. And after that, you know, my company came to me and told me, like, I need to watch what I'm saying on LinkedIn. And I said, wait a second. This guy told me to leave the country. And so I felt you know, I was very gaslit in that moment. Like, I'm not exactly sure what I did wrong. Can you explain it to me? And oh, wait, he said, leave the country, not leave the company. The country. Yeah. He told oh, me. Oh, wow. So he actually just said it. He said it point blank. Well, yeah, it's still up. It's it, the post is still up. He's fine. You know, of he course. had no consequences. But yeah, that, that ended up starting the unraveling of my career. I was being monitored, I was stressed out. I didn't want to leave the company. I didn't want to leave the comforts of corporate, even though I knew that my frequency inside was changing once I started advocating for people and once I knew what that felt like. But that's what started it. And that's kind of what pushed me out of my firm, essentially. Right, right. Well, listen, I got to show you this because I don't know why it's hanging out here in my office, but um, maybe it's for this purpose. This is my former law firm. Query Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton. So this is back when I was not being myself and playing the part. They loved me so much uh, that after I left the law firm and I started my own book packaging company, they literally interviewed me. They did a whole thing. They mailed, they framed it. They put it in a beautiful frame and you know paraded me around. I was invited to speak at the law firm to show like, look at these amazing, you know, job opportunities that happen after you work at Cleary. Flash forward to when I ran for Congress in 28, there was a handful of my former friends and former colleagues who supported, but they were like very much like, you know, you, you kind of, I think you need to temper the way you're speaking to now. We just in, it feels like a billion years ago, but it was the week before the October 7th attacks. Regina and I, my partner at Race to Dinner and I, did a event with the New York City Bar Association. And it was the biggest, it is still the biggest, most sponsored event in the history of the New York City Bar Association. And Cleary Gottlieb literally ghosted the entire thing. Like New York City law firm, it's all transactional. Right. Like, so now you know how it works to the point where I know a white because I in, in years gone by, Sybil, I'd say, well, you know, 
you can be your authentic self if you're a white, cis, straight, able-bodied man. But this guy that I'm about to tell you about is those things. And he's a partner at a massive law firm. He is the head of DEI. Why is a white male head of DEI? I mean, who the hell knows? He desperately wants to come out and speak very pro-Palestinian and won't do it because he's concerned about losing his job. And I'm thinking, first of all, like it's so cowardly. Yeah. And if anybody can can manage to get back on their feet, if they if he in fact would lose his job, it would be him. But he has just a hundred percent chosen money and safety, his own safety and his kids' safety over Palestinian people. Not and and also just not even having the mind to think that if they're going to do it to Palestinians, they're going to do it to us. They already have been doing it to us. It's not going to keep us safer, right? In the end. But I was just thinking to myself, how amazing that a cis straight white able-bodied equity partner at a law firm can't be his authentic self. Like that is what we've created in this country. And what are we doing? Like for what, you know? It doesn't make sense. I mean, you keep your job and you have a few dollars to buy your kids a few things, but that has nothing to do with their future and the future of this actual world, right? Like I think about my kids and I know I'm putting my family at risk by speaking out by not making the type of income that I was making for the family, but I want a world that they can live in. You know, I want liberation. I want safety. And if I want those things, I can't think about the short-term things, even though that's what a lot of people are doing. You have to think about like, well, what does that look like in the long-term for my kids and their kids? And even if I don't see anything in my lifetime, it's very short-sighted. And to have that amount of privilege and not do anything with it. Yeah. You know, I guess I'm even just thinking, so the world has just changed so much, right? And and I don't, it, I guess the world has always been like this, but a lot of things are happening. And this is what people who are far smarter than the two of us, you know, have said, like things will accelerate. Pandemics are related to George Floyd and George Floyd is related, obviously, to what's happening in Palestine and Congo and Sudan and so on and so on and so forth and the gun epidemic in this country. How is it? And I really don't understand. How is it? So let's say it's even more than buying a couple nice things for your kids. Let's say it's actually you you live in New York City. You can buy um, – you live in a beautiful, you know, three-bedroom apartment in the West Village. You have a house in the Hamptons or the Catskills or whatever the fuck it is that you – beach, mountains, whatever it is. You go to the fancy parties, blah, blah, blah. How is that a stand-in? For humanity, like I, I really don't understand. But I think, I mean, am I? Do you, what do you think about that? Like that's essentially what it is, right? These things, even if they're grandiose things, a yacht. How is that worth humanity? I, I think it might go back to one of the earlier things we were talking about. Do they see us as humans? Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So if you don't think it, if you don't think about it as humanity, because those are just those people over there that don't look like me, this isn't going to touch me, then I guess it's easier. But to your point, I mean, when you talk about guns in America or something like that, that is something that affects people that look like them. In that way, I don't know. I mean, I think that white supremacy and capitalism are a hell of a freaking drug. Like Mm -hmm. whatever cycle of addiction and spending that people do to Mm -hmm. numb themselves to a point where they can't even wake up when it's right in front of them. Mm -hmm. Right. How else do you explain it? I don't know how to explain it. 
It's it's psychosis. I just did a Zoom, our weekly Thursday here for the kids Zoom, and lots of people were crying. And in the middle of it, a white woman stopped and said, oh, my God, um, she lives behind her, her kids' elementary school is literally behind her house. We could see it in the back of her. And it, there was a lockdown drill. So she heard the whole, like all the things and she's crying and, you know, imagine her kids are just right there hiding in closets right now. And someone suggested, um, a black woman suggested, why don't you actually email every parent in your kid's school today and say, like, if you don't care about this, that's fine. You can just delete this email. But if you do, can you please, you know, join me in this community that here for the kids that's attempting to ban guns, you know? And all these women, and they show up every week and they're like, we keep asking people to join us and they just don't, they ghost or they just say no, or they're too busy with holidays or this, that, and the other. And Sybil, for me, that to me has been the scariest thing that I've learned since June 5th. In fact, my partner here for the kids who was on the podcast last go round, she said something very poignant. She said, we went really quickly from all lives matter to no lives matter. Yeah. So in the end, I think it's one thing to wrap your brain around. Okay, we've been we are dehuman. We've known that. You and I've known this our whole life, right? That's why we have to play a different part because the part that we're playing as our cast as our original selves, we're not human. The thing that I learned on June fifth in Denver is that they haven't humanized themselves or their own white children. And if you have a hundred, I'll say ninety nine percent of the power, and you don't see yourself as a human and you don't see your kids as a human, my God, like, where are we? Like, what is left? I think what you said, and and I I remember thinking that when I was wondering, like, why is this happening? And I haven't formulated it into like the most perfect words, but it's similar to what you said. It's, you must hate yourself so much you must be so oppressed in your own mind. Like we're oppressed, but at least I feel like I have liberation here. You know, I'm woken up to that. But the people that are like you're mentioning, like they're really, their minds are oppressed. They're in chains. They must hate themselves. And that's like, how do you shake that out of them? Like, what do you, what do you do? I don't know. And I don't think that I've come to the place where I'm, I went to, um, there was a screening of Deconstructing Karen last night. And I went to go answer questions. And a white woman was there who I, with a white husband who looked like he wanted to murder me. And he got up and left when I walked in the room and didn't come back and then texted his wife to leave. Oh, right. And she asked me this question. And I, I, and I just was very honest. She said, well, you know, you talk about speaking up and all that and the holidays are coming up. Like, what kind of advice do you have in terms of like what we're supposed to do at the holidays? And I was like, it is 2023 and we are watching a live stream genocide. And like, seriously, like you, you don't, you just say something. You, if someone says something racist, you say something. And if nobody is talking about what's happening to Palestinians, you bring it up. Yeah. You know, she was like, oh, that's really scary. Anyway, turns out, you know what she does for a living, Sybil? She is a children's clinical psychologist. Like that is where we are, and I left last night, and I'm like, there, it's it's hopeless. Like you cannot 
like you've got to find that for yourself. You had to find it for yourself. I had to find it for myself. And so I think I've just come to a point where I'm focused on those of us who have woken up to a degree and nurturing those relationships and that community rather than trying to convince people to care about themselves, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I am here for liberation for the global majority. I'm working for the global majority. And anybody that knows if you're truly about true liberation, you're about it for everyone. But if you're starting with the most oppressed, there's nothing wrong with that. So if anybody's like, well, why don't you care about this? No, it is about everyone. And you need to know that. And I'd rather spend my time in community with you and other folks that have that goal. And for the other people, like the stuff that you're putting out and I'm starting to put out there, it's so that they can say, well, I did know, but I didn't care. But you can't say I didn't know. And so I think for me, I did my job. If I'm able to at least communicate, this is what's happening. These are my lived experiences. These are some other folks' lived experiences of like, being oppressed and what white supremacy is doing to people. So yeah, you knew and you didn't care. That's what happened with my job. They knew what was happening to me. They chose not to act. They didn't care. If you're silent, you know, but you don't care enough to act. So back to your job, you walked away from an extremely lucrative situation. Like, do you have any regrets about that? No, I don't. I mean, I have really bad days even today. It's It's not a great life right now, but I never go back and think I should have stayed or I wish they bought my silence. I mean, that's the other thing. The fact that you turned down a formidable package for your silence, like you don't regret that either. No, not at all. I mean, when you think about it, the whole reason I got into this mess is because I started using my voice and being my authentic self. And so the irony of signing away my silence and my story for money. It goes against everything that I stand for and everything that I've become. It felt like blood money to me. And I did think about it, but I have no regrets and I will never have any regrets about not taking that money. Yeah. Good for you. All right. One final question for you, Sybil, because you know you said it's not a great life right now. What has happened to you and your family in your community since you've started speaking up specifically about Palestine? Well, I, I think, you know, like I said, I live in a small town and it's not very, it's not diverse. It's mostly white. And, you know, there's just been a lot of silence. And I've I've been an outspoken person since I've been here on DE&I and racial justice and things like that. But, you know, this one, I hate saying this one is different, but there is a different element to it because of the scare tactic of anti-Semitism. And so, of course, in my work with DE&I at the school, of course, I'm against anti-Semitism, but nobody wants to talk about or touch Palestine. You know, everybody thinks it's too complicated. You can't go against Israel, all of these things. And so I've been met with a lot of silence from people that have been doing a lot of this DEI work with me. And yeah, there's a lot of silence around this particular grave injustice. And I don't want to subscribe to that flavor of DEI that's all about let's celebrate Black History Month and Jackie Robinson and. Juneteenth and all the performative stuff, I'm over it. For me, when I talk about 
social justice, liberation, and equity, and diversity, and inclusion. I need all of it. And you have to get into the nuance, and you have to have those conversations, and you have to bring it back to humanity and justice. And I've realized that that frequency is different than the frequency of a lot of people that don't want to explore the complexity of that. And so, yeah, that's that's left me. It's a weird spot, Sarah. And I feel like you must know it too, where you have all of this backing and you have this great community online. And then sometimes you see those people in person and it brings you so much joy. And then in your own local community, it's like crickets. Yeah. And- it's it horrible. And, um, you know, we're not facing anything other than silence right now. So that's fine. But it's just, a, it's, it's odd. It's horrible. There's such a disconnect. You know, quickly about DEI stuff, I, I can't help but notice on LinkedIn, at least, you know, I, I predominantly on Instagram and LinkedIn, and LinkedIn sometimes. And then like, I sort of dip in and out of Twitter, which is sort of interesting again, but um, the silence of all of the DEI, and I'm I'm literally saying all. I think with maybe a, a couple of exceptions, almost across the board, the DEI influencers on LinkedIn have been silent, which is bananas to me. If you're like you're you're into diversity, equity, and inclusion, but not against genocide, like. What is that? You know, and in the in the wellness space, which largely lives on Instagram, same thing. Love and light, you know, namaste all, downward dog, this and that bullshit. And we're not going to talk about genocide. I mean, it is the masks are off and there are so many monsters who live amongst us. I will say, I hope in the end, there's no more DEI and there's no more Western wellness bullshit because what nonsense. Yeah. I mean, DEI has, has been nonsense. And I, th- I hope that this is its unraveling because you can't have DEI without centering liberation. And that's above anybody's heads right now. I know that from speaking to some people on the inside, they're not speaking out for the same reason so many other people are because they're afraid for their jobs because the DEI person reports into a white man at the end of the day. At, you know, at most of these companies. And so they're not empowered with say, saying like, oh, you can say these things. You can ask your employees how they feel about these. It's just like, no, we don't even want to risk it. So let's stay silent. And that's so dumb. Like how bad must people feel? And I think about that. And I'm grateful that I don't have to go into a corporate setting during this time because I feel like I would just want to scream. Horrible. It would be actually, um, someone else was saying that today, like they feel almost schizophrenic, like, you know, having to, to be like in one bubble where everyone's pretending like a genocide is not being live streamed and that we're not paying for it. And on the other hand, being around people like us who are talking about this and thinking about this and deeply feeling this at all times, like what a horrible way to live. It was a gift. Like what happened to me was a gift because I was doing that whole act for so long and I would have kept going, but I didn't realize it was killing me inside. I didn't realize it because I just kept buying stuff or like distracting myself. But then when I got that gift of like a punch in the face and now I am this different person, I am so glad that I can figure out a different way to be and don't have to figure out 
how to compartmentalize. I still need to figure out how to live in this system and earn money. But other than that, you know, it was a really, it, it would have killed me. And it's killing a lot of people. It really is. It's like changing their cells. Even white people, right? Nobody wants to have to go into work and not be able to say what they want to say. Even your friend. It's killing him. It is. I, I mean, I had a conversation with him. The last one for like, I don't have any interest in really talking much more, but I could see it on his face. Like it's making him physically sick. And um, what a weird choice, you know, to pick a vacation, making sure you go the same family vacation every year over, I don't know, making yourself well and saving people's lives. It's very bizarre. Okay. I said, I, I said one, one last question before, but I actually have one more. What advice do you give to people who look like us or who don't look like us? who are too scared to speak up at work. Everybody has to go by their own circumstances. I, I always tell people like, you don't necessarily need to do it. I wouldn't recommend anybody doing what I do because it's not for everyone. This life that we chose and this path is not for everyone. But if you feel a gnawing inside you, if you feel that gnawing inside and you want to figure out what it is, then I would suggest you try. You use your voice and you see what it feels like. And then you keep going. Just take baby steps. If you have that gnawing in you, if you're hearing something on that other frequency and you really, you're trying to tune it out, but it just keeps coming back, just go with it and it will take you somewhere. The gnawing is going to take you somewhere. So you need to trust that you have this intuition inside you. We all do that gets buried along the way. And the gnawing is your intuition. And if you're built for it, and a lot of people have more strength than they realize. So I'd say like start small and um, just go from there. If you knew me five years ago, this wouldn't even be in the cards for me. Like I was so quiet. I mean, honestly, like 40 years of like no social media presence at all to now I am viral. I would have never, ever, like I was so quiet, so private, so compartmentalized. On one hand, I say like I wouldn't recommend what I did. But I, on the other hand, I say if I can do it, then so can you. Agreed. Like truly, if you, not five years ago for me, but 10 years ago for me, same. Not recognizable. Yeah. You know, different, completely different person. I would recommend it because the gnawing, and I like that word, that's a really good verb, it becomes unbearable. Yeah. It becomes unbearable and it's not sustainable. So it's better to get trolled and have people hate you than you hate yourself and trolling yourself. Yeah. Sybil Patry is an activist, speaker, and executive coach. Her website is inpursuitcollective.com and you can find her on Instagram at Sybil Patry, S-I-B-I-L-P-A-T-R-I. For more information on how you can get involved with Here for the Kids, visit our website here for number four, the kids.com. There you can learn more about our mission, make a donation to help support our work, and buy our Here for the Kids merchandise. Please follow us on social media at Here for the Kids Action on Instagram. Share our posts and tell your friends. Our podcast and newsletter are both hosted through Substack. Please sign up for our Substack to get our latest newsletter issues plus alerts for every new podcast episode. That's hereforthekids.substack.com. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. If you didn't like it, please don't do that. Leaving a quick five-star rating helps new folks discover us, so take a moment to do that. 
and share this show with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Abolition Liberation Solidarity is a Here for the Kids production. Our producer and editor is Heath Rosella. I'm Syra Rao, co-founder of Here for the Kids and your host and executive producer. We will have new episodes every two weeks. Please join us again soon.